Okay, so uh, welcome uh, to uh, the new lecture in the series of lectures we're having of uh, CEP at 21, which is to celebrate the 21st anniversary of the Centre for Economic Performance. So uh, I'm the director of the Centre, John Mandarin, and I'm very happy tonight to have uh, Steve Machen, who's our research director, to uh, give us the lecture tonight. Um, uh, most of you will probably know Steve. He has had a glittering academic career. Currently, he is a fellow of the British Academy and professor at UCL since 1996, president of uh, European Association of Labour Economics, so to say but a few things, uh, and also the research director of the CP, probably most important of all of those. Um, Steve started his career um, uh, getting a first-class honours at Wolverhampton, um, in, and then moving on to Coventry to do uh, to Warwick to do his uh, PhD, and then coming uh, to UCL uh, afterwards to uh, finally take up a professorship there. He's been a visiting professor in many places, including MIT and Harvard, and has worked on a huge number of different areas. Um, so if, uh, almost any area you can think of in implied microeconomics, uh, across a whole range of labour, crime, for performance, and indeed to a lot of work on wage inequality, which is the subject of his uh, lecture tonight. One of the other things I think is, which is really admirable about Steve is that uh, he's not content just to um, do top quality academic research, but he also has a huge engagement in uh, the real world in terms of influencing policy. Um, so just to mention two things which are particularly important. First of all, he was on the National Equalities Panel, which is a big in-depth investigation into inequalities. Uh, led by John Hill, who's actually just walked in, uh, and also uh, he's currently on the Low Pay Commission, which actually uh, sets minimum wages in the United Kingdom, another area which Steve has worked on extensively, and I'm sure he'll touch on tonight. So without further ado, I welcome to, uh, Steve Machen to give tonight's lecture. Okay, thanks, John, for the introduction. Um, I'm going to talk about technical change in this talk, and of course, I have no idea how to use the computer. Um, oh, no, it works. Okay, brilliant. Okay, so, so, um, so in this talk, I'd like to um, take the opportunity um, to concentrate on um, trying, to, trying to summarize and say something about what we've learned in quite a large body of research um, at the CEP over the years. Uh, looking at um, what's happened to inequality in labour market outcomes. Uh, now, this, the background to this is that there's been fairly big shifts in the structure of wages. Uh, by the structure of wages, I mean the whole wage distribution. Um, in the UK, since the late 1970s, and in other countries, I'll focus on some international differences as we go through. Um, and what's been going on is um, the nature of labour markets has changed quite radically, and there's been a number of factors that underpin um, these fairly radical changes in the nature of labour markets. And I'm going to focus on some of these in some detail as I go through the talk. Um, so the kind of things I'm, I'm, I'm interested in are things about um, education and skills, uh, technical changes, uh, globalisation, uh, the changing role for labour market institutions. Um, it's, I, th I think in terms of setting the context, um, you know, there's been a key interest from academics recently uh, and from policymakers in trying to understand what's happened in terms of these shifts in the wage structure. Um, in part because the changes are quite are pretty, are pretty big. Um, and so the kind of interesting questions I think that we have are trying to accurately document 
um, using large-scale microeconomic data on individuals um, over time to accurately document by how much uh, inequality has risen and to try and get a better understanding of what the mechanisms that might or drivers of um, rising inequality might be. So as, so as I said, in, again, in terms of context, this has been a core research area, um, MBCP, uh, over, over the last, well, I guess over the last two decades. Um, okay. Here we go wrong. So the outline. So what I want to do is try and, try and talk to that background material that I just spoke about. So I'll begin by documenting trends in wage inequality. It's wages I'm most interested in here, uh, the inequality of wages and how that's evolved through time. Um, I'll set up a very simple economic framework to try and think about how we might be able to explain or better understand some of those um, shifts in the wage distribution that might have occurred. And I'll do that by thinking about uh, differences in demand and supply for different sorts of workers. Um, how shifts in relative demand and relative supply may have um, revealed themselves in, in different wages for different, so different workers or workers with different characteristics over time. Um, having done that um, and uh, emphasising the role that demand has played um, in outstripping supply, which will be a key feature about the talk, uh, I'll try and talk about what the drivers of the observed relative demand shifts have actually been. Uh, and then I'll end with some discussion uh, about the UK context, about where we are now, about the fact that we have the highest um, inequality levels uh, for, for certainly for the last 30 years um, in this country, and talk to a certain extent about how <laughs> the findings of the research and the description of the facts are links to policy. Uh, okay. Right, so I'm the first of these. It's, it's quite important to start with to have some kind of operational working definition of, of inequality so we can think about uh, how a consistently defined measure of inequalities has moved through time. Um, so one, one rather simple way of doing this, I, 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 should, I should say there's a big literature out there about measuring um, inequality in wages, earnings, income, uh, and there's many, many different indices out there. And I take a very simple approach like lots of labor economists do uh, and try, try and pick out certain parts of a wage distribution and say how they've moved over time. So the way in which we could do that is you could consider ranking individuals from the lowest paid to the highest paid um, in, the, in the labor market, and then picking out people at certain points, and then seeing how those points have moved over time, see how much wage growth there is at different points in the distribution. Perhaps in an absolute sense for people at a particular part of a distribution, or perhaps in terms of relative movements between people at different points of a distribution. Okay, so we could kind of pick out some, if we, if, we, if we order the people from lowest paid to the highest paid and put them into percentiles of the distribution, we can rank people, um, we can pick out certain percentiles of interest. Okay, so we might pick out somebody who's 10% from the top of the wage distribution as a high earner. We might pick out somebody, so they're at the 90th percentile. We might pick out somebody who's at the middle, would be the 50th percentile, the median. We might pick out somebody at the 10th percentile, uh, somebody who's 10% from the uh, bottom. Uh, and we might think about uh, looking at the way in which the wages of those different groups has evolved through time. Okay. So one overall commonly used inequality measure um, that does this is to take the 90th percentile and the 10th percentile and express them as a ratio. So this is going to say how much more the, 90th, the person at the 90th percentile in a given year uh, earns relative to somebody at the 10th percentile. So we might think of that as a useful overall inequality measure, and we could track that through time. 
we might think about uh, things perhaps going on differently at different parts of a distribution. So another working definition of use that I'll refer to quite a lot through the talk would be to think about upper tail inequality and lower tail inequality. So we might, a, a natural measure, if we're using the 90-10 ratio as the overall inequality measure, a natural measure of upper tail inequality is the ratio of the 90th to the 50th percentile, and a natural measure of lower tail inequality is the ratio of the 50th to the 10th percentile. So what I'm going to do is show you how these things have moved over time in, 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 in the UK labour market um, over the last 40 years or so. Okay. So this shows you trends in UK wage inequality in terms of the first measure, um, the overall inequality measure, the 90-10 um, gap in the log of weekly earnings uh, for full-time men and women separately. So the blue line is full-time men and the red line is full-time women. So you see what's become, I think, I think a fairly well-known um, well pattern um, of, of change. Uh, you see, uh, if you go back to 1970, these numbers on this scale translate to the 1950 being about, sorry, 90-10 differential. Uh, the point 0.9 you see there corresponds to uh, somebody at the 90th percentile in two and a half times. Um, somebody at the 10th percentile. So back in 1970, uh, the, for both full-time men and full-time women, uh, somebody 10% from the top earned about two and a half times as much as um, somebody 10% from the bottom of a wage distribution. Okay, what happens um, after, after that? Well, you see this fairly small um, compression of a wage distribution in the 1970s, and then from somewhere towards the end of the 1970s, um, you see a very big um, increase, uh, which continues up and up and up um, until we get to 2010, when you can see the 90-10 the ratio for men is about 3.6. So we've had an increase from 2.5 to 3.6. So this is a huge increase um, over time, about a 45% increase in the gap between the 90th percentile and the 10th percentile. So before I move on, it's, it's, it's quite interesting to just think a little bit about the kind of history of the research um, surrounding this chart. Um, so if you look at that period in the 1970s when you see a fall from, I don't know, 0 0.9 to 0 0.83, 0.82, um, people were writing about this in the mid to late 1980s when the data had become available. And we're talking about this as being a big compression of the uh, wage distribution occurring in the 1970s. Which is actually quite interesting. So if you go back and read some of those articles, you do see that people refer to this as a big compression, of, a big compression that occurred in the 1970s. The most striking thing about this is that we, what, we, what, what happens next absolutely dwarfs what people were thinking of as a big compression um, back then. And you see this massive increase uh, in overall inequality, both for men and women, um, full-time men and women, uh, which continues up, up right, up to, right up to today. Um, the increase is a little less marked for women, but nonetheless, it's still a pretty big increase, uh, both for men and for women. Okay. So, so that's, that, that's kind of what we're interested in. Um, and it's not surprising, I think, that the researchers tried to explain this very sharp increase in inequality um, that's occurred. Uh, as I said a moment ago, in terms of measurement, it's quite useful to break this down into the top half of the distribution and the bottom half of the distribution. Um, so if you do that... Um, you see these charts here. So the left-hand panel is for men and the right-hand panel is for women. Now the blue line corresponds to upper tail inequality, the 90-50 ratio, 
and the red line corresponds to lower tail inequality of a 50-10 ratio. Okay, so it's quite interesting if you consider the, the potentially different trends in, in these two. So basically what happens is you see upper tail, since, since about 1980, you see almost a trend increase in the 90-50 ratio, particularly for men. Um, and the inequalities carried on. If you break it, break it down by decade, you see rising inequality in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Um, if you look at the lower tail inequalities, there's a slightly different pattern. You see very sharp rises in lower tail inequality in the 80s, still going up in the 90s, but then plateauing out um, in the 2000s. Uh, those kind of patterns are even more marked for women. If you look at the red line on the right-hand panel, you see a very, very, very flat 50-10 um, ratio um, from somewhere around the uh, late 1990s um, up to 2010. Okay, so there are differences by decade, and that's actually quite important when we might want to think about trying to understand uh, what the potential explanations of these these ob obviously very large shifts in inequality, labour market inequality, have actually been. Okay, just. Um, just to place those numbers in an international context, um, the, um, this shows some numbers, slightly different source, so they're slightly different for the UK, although they're very close. Um, this is male 90-10 wage ratios across different countries. Okay, so for where the data exists, again, over the last 40 years or so. Um, it's a bit sparse in the 70s. Oh, it was a bit sparse back in 1970 to actually have the data. But you can see exactly the same pattern there for the, um, for the UK. 1980, the 90-10 ratio was 2.7. It goes up to 3.7 by, by 2009. Um, if you focus in on the 1980s, you see what the literature tends to talk about as being a kind of stylized fact, that the big inequality countries were, um, were the UK and the US. And elsewhere, particularly in continental Europe, you don't see much in the way of shifts in inequality. Uh, many people argued, that, uh, many people argued in, the, in their work that actually you see it more in unemployment than you do it in wages. Okay. But if you look at the chart, if you, if, you, if you look at these numbers on here, the two countries where you see the biggest increase, um, in, in, certainly in the 80s, are the UK and the US. Um, the story then starts to change a little bit um, if you go, move into the 1990s and you see inequality start, wage inequality starting to take off in some other places, notably Germany in the 1990s. Uh, by the time you get to the 2000s, it actually seems that wa rising wage inequality is the norm rather than the exception. The UK and the US pretended to look like they were the exception back in the 80s with these big shifts in, in wage inequality. If you look in the 2000s, practically all those countries on there um, see an increase, e even if they're fairly small increases from small levels like they are, small initial levels like they are in the Scandinavian countries. Practically all of those countries, um, with one notable exception, um, seem to see an increase in, in the 90-10 male wage ratio um, through, through, the, uh, through the 2000s. The exception, of course, is France, uh, where there isn't much change um, going on at all. But everywhere else, you, you, tend to see, um, you tend to see rising inequality. Sweden doesn't, Sweden doesn't move very much, but Sweden moved a bit in the, 19, in the 1990s as well. But I think it's probably misleading to think of only the uh, Anglo-American countries as being the big inequality increases. The wage structures seem to be moving in lots of places. Okay. Uh, one notable feature of the changing nature of the labor force that's occurred at the same time 
as we've seen these big increases in wage inequality, has been the changing nature of force, labor, changing nature of a labour force with respect to their education levels. Okay, we've seen big expansions in the fractions of the workforce that have higher, um, higher educational levels, either higher educational qualifications or higher skill levels, if we can measure those higher skill levels. Um, so it's actually quite useful to think about um, differences between particular sorts of workers, because differences in uh, the way in which workers have been paid over time is actually a key factor underpinning the shifts in wage inequality. So if, we, if we've got a wage distribution at a point in time, we could think about the inequality of wages in that distribution as reflecting differences between workers who've got certain sets of characteristics and differences in inequality within the groups of workers who've got those kind of characteristics. So we might think there's lots more graduates in the labour force today. So we might think the wage between graduates and non-graduates might have moved. So that's a between-group components of inequality. On the other hand, the inequality of 90-10, if you like, uh, within the graduate group and the non-graduate group are the within-group components of, of inequality. So we might actually be interested in thinking about um, both these between-group and within-group um, aspects of changes in, changes in inequality. Um, so I'm just going to show you some numbers looking at what, showing, showing you that a key feature of the rise in wage inequality has actually been um, shifts in these educational wage differentials between more highly educated and less highly educated people. Okay. So this here shows, this, this chart here is um, numbers from the uh, General Household Survey. Um, in 1980, 1990, 2000, and 2008. So this is the gap between um, uh, the weekly wages of graduates relative to non-graduates. So back in 1980, it was about one and a half. So the typical graduate was paid one and a half times as much as the uh, typical non-graduate. Okay. What happens in the 80s at the same time as you saw this big increase in inequality? Well, this gap, wage gap between graduates and non-graduates goes up by a lot. Um, it goes up to 1.63, 1.64, I think. 1.63, I think it is, um, from 1.5-ish. Okay, so a very big increase in the uh, wage gap between graduates and non-graduates. Uh, it comes down a little bit in 2000, then goes back up again in 2008, um, but stays at a much, much higher level than it was back in, back in 1980. So over the last 30 years or so, the uh, wages of graduates have risen very significantly compared to the wages of non-graduates. Um, this has been accompanied by the, that, that particular group actually becoming much more prominent uh, in, in the labour force. Um, so this is the share of, 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 the share, of um, share in employment of graduates. So back in 1980, about 6% of the workforce had a degree. Uh, if you move through to 1990, it goes up to nearly 10%. Then you get a very, very big expansion um, through the 1980s and carrying on into the 2000s. So we're almost up at about 25% of the workforce now having a degree. Okay, so we've seen something that maybe we might think from standard first-year economics, this might look a bit funny, because we've got loads more graduates in the, in, in the labour force, yet their wages have gone up relative to non-graduates. We would normally think if a supply of a particular set of workers goes up, that their relative wage should come down. So I'll move to that in a moment. I just want to say one thing before I move to try and talk about that apparent um, contradiction. Um, just by showing something else, this is now the ratio of graduate earnings to people right at the bottom end of the education distribution, people with no educational qualifications. Okay, so these wage gaps are obviously bigger. 
So it's about 1.7, just under 1.7 in 1980. This, this um, earnings ratio continues to rise and goes as far as 2.1 by the time we get to 2008. So you can think about this in one way or the other. Either the graduates have done really well, or the guys with no, no educational qualifications have done really badly. And they're in a much worse position now compared to where they were um, some 30 years ago. Um, if you look at the supply differences, again, this looks a little bit strange. Uh, so the purple line there is what I showed you already. That's the share of graduates um, in, the, in, in, the, in, in employment. Um, the orange line is people with some educational qualifications. And then the black line, which comes down massively, or the black bars, which come down massively, are the um, share with no educational qualifications at all. Okay, so what seems to be happening is if, if people are increasing their relative share, if, if, if groups are increasing their relative share, their, their wages seem to be going up. Yet if they're falling, their wages seem to be going down. Um, so this gives you some kind of, if you think about this in just in terms of standard textbook economics with a downward slope in demand curve and upward slope in supply curve, you kind of think, what's going on? Um, seems contradictory um, in the sense that if the supply of a particular group has gone up, um, then, and their relative wage has gone up at the same time. So the question is, how can you reconcile this? And this is a key feature of the work on, on, on shifts in labor market inequality. It's pretty straightforward. If you want to think about the relative demand and the relative supply, if the relative supply has gone up and the wages have gone up, then the relative demand must have gone up by more than the relative supply. So in terms of just a little graph here, a little chart, um, if we've got a demand curve and a supply curve for skilled against unskilled wages relative to skilled against unskilled employment, the only way that we can get an outcome where the supply goes up at the same time as the wage goes up is if the demand curve has moved out. It's that way, actually, isn't it? If the demand curve has moved out. Okay? So what that's doing there is actually that's just holding the supply curve fixed just for convenience. But what this means is the demand curve must have moved out more than the supply curve. So a big deal in this literature has been to try and say what is the, has been the driver of these kind of relative demand shifts. Okay, so graduates are doing, or skilled workers are doing better in terms of both their wages and their employment. Less skilled workers are doing, doing worse in terms of their wages and their employment. Okay. So we can consider this um, in a fairly simple relative demand and supply framework. And that, I mean, that's, that chart um, shows, shows basically what we might, th might think about doing. There's another way of thinking about this, which goes back to a paper which was written well before these trends have been observed um, by Tinbergen. So Tinbergen, Tinbergen talks about the race between de demand and supply. Okay? So if you want to phrase it in these terms, you could think about um, the wages of a particular group going up if the demand outstrips the supply. On the other hand, if the demand is less than the supply, then the uh, wages would go down. So in the case of the UK over the last 30, 40 years, it seems like despite the fact that supply has gone up a lot, um, demand has won the race between demand and supply, and that's why the relative wages have gone up. So a key and integral part of rising wage inequality has been these rising wage gaps um, between skilled and unskilled workers, driven by shifts in relative demand. Okay. Uh, this, has become known, this has become known as what Asimoglu and Orta refer to as the canonical model. I thought I was going to have words of speech problems there. Canonical model, okay. Um, which is this thing in mathematical terms, um, which is basically saying that the relative wage um, depends on the demand, a demand index D and the supply negatively, the, um, the ratio of the skilled employment to the unskilled employment. Okay? And the extent to which 
Uh, increases in supply are going to dampen down wages, depends on the extent to which you can substitute, an employer can substitute between the two sorts of workers. So that E term is what's referred to as elasticity of substitution. So people have tried to estimate this model. Um, the kind of classic article which first introduced this is Katz and Murphy. Um, so Katz and Murphy estimated this demand and supply model for the US and found that it works pretty well. So they proxy the demand shifts by a trend and they say that you get this 0.033 coefficient here on the, on, on, on the trend variable. Now what that says is that says that wages are trending up by 3.3 percentage points a year of the relative wages of, of in their case, um, college graduates to high school graduates are trending up by 3.3 percentage points per year over and above the changes in supply. So that's a massive trend increase in the college, what's referred to as the college wage premium. Okay? So they argue that, um, that, that you can get some way in trying to explain what's been happening in terms of uh, shifts in wage inequality by thinking about shifts in relative demand and shifts in relative supply. And you can put together evidence based on time series data that's along, along those kind of lines. Uh, this is estimates of that particular model for the, um, for the UK. Um, so some stuff that Michael Amior at UCL did. And then this chapter is one of my chapters in a book. So I kind of updated the data um, from 1997 to 2010. So again, you can see that this relative demand and supply model seems to fit fairly well um, for, the, for, the, um, for the UK labor market. Uh, the trend increase is not as big as in the US. So that 0.012 on the time trend in the final column, column four, um, says that the relative wage of graduates compared to non-graduates has been trending up by 1.2 percentage points a year um, between uh, whenever it starts, 1974, I think, and 2010. So that's a big increase in the relative wage of, um, of graduates compared to non-graduates, 1.2 percentage points a year. So something like 40, 50 percent um, uh, increase over the, over the last 30, 40 years. Okay, so very, size, very sizable shifts. So this kind of canonical model seems to fit the UK time series data reasonably, reasonably well as well. Okay. So on the face of it, uh, this kind of simple relative demand and supply model seems to be uh, doing a reasonable job uh, in accounting for the observed trends in a between-group component, the graduate-non-graduate -graduate wage differential. Okay, I'm going to come back to the shortcomings of that model in a little while, uh, but first I want to try and think about its key, it's, it, it's the key element that comes out of it which is the idea that relative demand must have shifted faster than relative to supply. And so then to try and look at what might have underpinned this shift in relative demand. Okay. Right, so there's various hypotheses that people have put forward. These are reasonably well rehearsed in this literature now. Uh, there's quite a lot of articles have been written on them, uh, not least a number of them have come from the CEP. Um, uh, and so there's, I think there's three main arguments that people have put forward about what might underpin uh, the size or scale of the relative demand shift. Um, the first one is um, the idea that technological changes have been introduced into the labor market and these technological changes have been favorable for skilled workers and at the same time detrimental to unskilled workers. Uh, this is sometimes referred to as skill bias technological change um, and I'll talk about that again in a moment. Uh, the second key argument that people have thought about is increased international competition 
And the argument here is that people think that increased international competition, particularly with developing countries who have a comparative advantage in manufacturing uh, low-wage products, uh, has been detrimental to low-skilled workers. So if you like, that's why the relative wages of the guys with no educational qualifications have fallen through the floor. Um, those two arguments are the ones that receive most attention. There's a third argument that I'll talk about as well, which is the, that the importance of labour market institutions has changed. Uh, typically, people think about it declining, uh, and the usual argument that people think about is trade unions being much less uh, influential in setting wages than they used to be in the past. Uh, the other dimension of it is to do with minimum wages, and I'll get, again come back to talk about that um, right near the end of the talk. Okay, so let's talk about the first one, technical change. So the basic idea here is that, um, that technological changes, the kinds of uh, new technologies, new machines that have been introduced into uh, modern workplaces, raise productivity, uh, but only some workers have the necessary skills to be able to operate these kinds of new technologies. Okay, uh, so if there are these new technologies coming in and there's some skilled workers who can use them better than unskilled workers who are not able to use them, then the skilled workers get a wage payoff, the unskilled workers either lose their, lose, perhaps lose their job, if not their relative wages fall. Okay, so the argument is that the, if you like that um, technological changes have, have been skill biased in this time period. It's quite interesting to put, yeah, I mean, it's quite useful to put a caveat up on this uh, as a general conclusion forever. You can think of periods where um, technical changes may well have been skill biased. There's other periods, for example, the Industrial Revolution, where they were clearly unskill biased. Um, so there's no real reason why you should have this operating always in the same, in the same kind of way. But the kinds of, the kinds of technologies which I'll talk about in a little while, like computers, people tend to think have been um, uh, skill biased in nature. Okay. So the idea here is that skill demand shifts, you would expect skill demand shifts to vary systematically with indi indicators of, of, of technological change if this was to be a serious prospect in terms of its potential to explain why wage inequality has gone up. Okay. So in the literature, there's some indi fairly indirect evidence that doesn't look at um, new technology indicators at all, uh, which I'm not going to talk about here. But some more direct evidence uh, which looks directly using statistical methods at the relationship between increases in skill demand that might be going on within particular industries or particular firms or particular workplaces over time and asks the question, do you see faster increase in skill demand where the technological changes uh, have been more likely to be introduced? So this table, I hope people can see it, this table is a bit little. Um, this table summarises a bunch of studies from the UK and the US. Um, uh, and it's quite interesting what comes, what comes, out, of this, uh, comes out of this table. Um, so for very different sets of data in very different time periods, using different measures of skill demand and using different measures of technological change, you always see a, a statistically significant association between shifts in skill demand and technology. So the kinds of um, technology measures that people might look at are industry computer use, uh, computer investments, uh, research and development, uh, expenditure, uh, innovation counts, microcomputers, uh, that's just the examples on there. Always the places that have introduced those kind of te new technologies have seen faster skill demand shifts in the context of the UK and the US uh, in various um, time periods um, as, as, as delineated on this, um, on, on this table. So people take that as evidence that skill-based technological change seems to have been um, seems to be, or, or at least this is a prerequisite for skill biased technological change, to be a serious contender in explaining 
shifts in wage inequality. Uh, you can look at other stuff as well. Um, there's also some evidence that skill-biased technical changes are happening in the same sorts of industries in different countries, and this includes the developing world. If you actually look at what's going on in some countries in, in the developing world, and you look at which industries are increasing their, uh, their skill demand requirements uh, faster in places like Brazil, uh, where we, we had some, 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 some data we looked at, uh, you actually see that um, it's the same industries in Brazil as it is in the US and it is in the UK, uh, which are increasing their skill demand faster, and they are the more technologically advanced industries. Now, this, of course, has some ramifications, and I'm going to come back to it in a, in a, in a little while, for the idea that international trade might be the main culprit at play. Okay. Um, so that's some kind of skill-based technological change hypothesis. Um, what, are the, what are the difficulties with this? Um, and indeed with the canonical model which underpins um, the idea that this is, this is the key mechanism that's going on. Well, one of one is that other hypotheses may be consistent with patterns of change, so I'll address that in a moment. A second is that you might have issues of reverse causation. It may not be that the causation flows from technology to skill demand, but that people um, adjust, the technological changes are driven by by spare skills. Now that's a difficult one to, to take on and I'm going to kind of sidestep it a bit um, in, in this talk. Uh, it's clearly something that the research needs to focus on a bit more than it currently has. Um, the third thing is that um, if you actually think about this trend demand shift story, it actually tends to over predict what the actual rise in wage inequality has been. So the canonical model actually tends to over predict uh, which is saying that maybe there must be something else perhaps going on as well. So if, you, so if you look at this, uh, I'll just illustrate this overprediction from trend. This is exactly the same measure of the 9010 male wage inequality numbers I had before, except for that I've just indexed uh, 1970 at zero. Okay, so you see something like 43% increase in the, uh, in the 9010 wage ratio. It's just reproduced basically, just rescaling for 1970 to be equal to naught. Okay, now you could fit a trend line through that, and this is what that does. Uh, and so the trend regression line is at the top there, the, into the red line on the diagram. So this trend line, if you thought that demand was actually trending up uh, over time, as some people who've written on skill-based technological change argue, then you actually see that the, this over-predicts what the rise in wage inequality has been. It would have actually gone up by 62% rather than the 43% that we've, that we've seen. So there are some issues that clearly the standard model um, doesn't necessarily get to grips with. Okay. Ooh. Okay. So what's happened then? Well, this has led people to refine the skill-biased technological change hypothesis um, in certain directions, and the main development, uh, the, way I, the, way, the way I put it forward is it's fairly simplistic. It's, you know, skilled workers do better because, um, because they're able to use the te new technologies. Unskilled workers do worse because they're not. Okay, and that's, and that's what shifted the um, relative wages. Um, some more recent work has actually focused much more on what kind of jobs people do, and particularly what kind of tasks they do in those jobs. So you might argue that, um, that you might argue that some sorts of jobs that highly skilled workers do could be replaced by computers. On the other hand, some sorts of jobs that, that highly skilled people do can't be replaced by computers, and the same for the low-skilled guys. Okay, so the, this, this paper by Otto Levy and Manane uh, is an influential paper in this area. They draw the distinction between jobs that involve uh, routine tasks and jobs that involve non-routine tasks. 
So the argument is that computers can replace um, jobs that involve fairly routine tasks. Hence the reason why all the bank teller jobs have gone. Hence the reason why lots of secretarial jobs have gone. On the other hand, um, computers don't replace uh, jobs that require non-routine tasks. So that's why computer programmers haven't been displaced by computers. In fact, they're complementary to them and they enable them to do their programming more efficiently. And so this is the kind of idea here that, that it's not so much skill-biased technological change that matters. It may be something which literature tended to refer to as task-biased technical change um, that might matter. So this, 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 um, this kind of more nuanced story therefore says that you can get differences between skills and the routineness or non-routineness of jobs. Uh, and so it's not quite as clear a yes-no picture between higher education and low education. Okay, so here's some examples about you know, routine tasks and non-routine tasks. Um, so you know, we know plenty of assembly line workers have been replaced by robots. Uh, and uh, so we might well think that that's a clear case where you would get substitution going on. On the other hand, um, uh, doctors and lawyers uh, you know, aren't being substituted so much by computers and new technologies. Uh, but the other, the other key thing that emerges from this is that there's also some relatively low-wage jobs that have typically been low-skilled jobs uh, that won't be substituted by, um, by, by computer technology or computer capital as well. So, you know, uh, one of my colleagues at the CP, Alan Manning, likes to tell the story about, um, about uh, you, can buy, um, you can buy various uh, robots which will clean your house. Uh, uh, and uh, the trouble with them is they're not very good. You know, they fall down the stairs and they do all this kind of stuff. And so therefore, you know, you don't really expect that that's actually going to be something that substitutes very well. So a cleaner who is actually not, not really going to be displaced by these kind of new technologies, a cleaner with low education levels, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so uh, you can kind of think of a situation where this is a more nuanced story. It will give different predictions about, about what's going to happen. And uh, the more recent evidence has tended to emphasize this polarization of the labor market that follows from this. So a key aspect of rising wage inequality has been polarization in the sense that many of these jobs that have gone have come from the middle part of the distribution. Okay, so this chart shows that. This takes, on the, on the, low, on the horizontal axis, takes um, jobs in all occupations from a new earnings survey in 1979 and orders them from the lowest wage to the highest wage, then puts them into 10 deciles. So decile one is the 10% of lowest paid jobs in 1979. Decile 10 is the highest 10% of paid jobs in 1979. And then it looks where employment growth occurred um, over, the next, uh, over the next almost 30 years. Okay. So you can see you kind of, at the top end, deciles 9 and 10, the high-paid jobs from, the nine, from 1979, you've seen very, very big growth uh, in, the, in those kind of jobs. So this is the skill-biased technological change story. This is those kind of occupations that have been, uh, been in line with the skill-biased technological change hypothesis. Uh, you see this hollowing out of jobs in the middle, but what you don't see is these jobs in decile 1 falling, as you might expect if you bought the pure skill-biased technological change story. This is the cleaning jobs and the childcare jobs and so on, down the bottom end of the distribution, which you've actually seen an increase in the demand for those jobs um, over, over the last 30 years. So this kind of more uh, nuanced version tends to emphasize the idea that you need to look more about what the kind of jobs that people do are if you actually want to get a better understanding of shifts in, shifts in inequality. 
okay? And was hollowing out or polarization of the labor market has been a key thing. If you do this kind of chart in the United States in the 90s, and if you do it in Germany in the 90s, you see the same kind of pattern. You see jobs going from the middle part of the distribution. Uh, there's research out there that shows this. Uh, the pattern of change is different. Um, you don't see exactly the same kind of pattern by each decile, in part, I think, because if you ranked them in 1979, they'd be different across the countries. But you see this hollowing out, if you like, this kind of J shape, where you see a little bit of growth at the bottom end, down in, into a U, and then very sharp increase up um, in the top couple of deciles. Okay, so polarization, labor market polarization has been kind of viewed as a key aspect about what's going on. Okay? From an education perspective, it's very important to think about how people who are being displaced from these middle jobs, what they may be able to do in terms of their education and training, and I'll come back to that uh, when I talk about policy towards the end. Okay. Let me first talk about the other main competing hypothesis. Um, and so if, if, you, if, you, if you look at the history of the research in this area and go back to when people were writing papers about this. Um, it, it kind of started in the early 1990s when people started writing papers about shifts in wage inequality, when it became clear from the data that there really had been a step change since the late 1970s onwards. And then it became a huge industry writing these papers. Um, in the 1990s, uh, there was a kind of heated uh, te technology versus trade debate on this. So the idea would be that... Um, the idea was that, you know, some people thought that trade was what really mattered for shifts in inequality, some people thought that technology was, and there was lots of arguments about, about, about the two. So the basic international trade idea is very simple. Um, basically, if you think about it, you've got two countries uh, uh, which, which don't trade with one another to start with. Um, they have skilled and unskilled workers, and they both make skilled and unskilled products. Okay? There's a high-wage country which has a comparative advantage in making the high-wage, the skill-intensive products, and there's a low-wage country which has a comparative advantage in making the, the low-skill products. To start with, because they don't trade, they both have to make both of them. Okay. When you open up to trade, um, you see the high-wage country now importing these unskill-intensive products because they're being manufactured more cheaply in the low-wage country. And so what this does is this, this damages the wages of the low-skill guys or damages the employment prospects of the low-skilled guys in the high-wage country. Okay? So therefore, labor market inequality is going to go up, largely because the relative wages of the um, people displaced by trade or affected by trade are going to, um, are going to go down. Okay? So I think, it's, again, it's, it's quite interesting to go back and look at the literature back when, it, when it, in its genesis, when it first started, because this was many people's first guess about what, was, about what was going on. Um, it turns out that many people's first guess wasn't exactly uh, spot on, I think, if you look at various pieces of evidence. Now, of course, this is not to say that trade doesn't matter for wage inequality. It's pretty obvious, I think, but given the rise of trade with, with, well, with the BRIC countries, particularly China and India, that trade's going to have to have an impact on the wage distribution at some point. But there's good reasons to think that certainly up to the start of the 2000s, mid-2000s, that maybe the role of trade was not as important as some people might guess it would have been. Why is that? Well, I can give you at least four pieces of evidence why, 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 that, why that's true. The first one is that the trade flows were just not big enough. The trade flows in developing countries that occurred at the same time as inequality was going on, particularly in the 1980s, they just weren't big enough. Um, if, unless you'd have some huge elasticity that's um, in some huge sensitivity of wages to, to the size of the imports coming in, they just weren't big enough to explain the big shifts that we saw 
um, in wage inequality. So Paul Krugman has argued this, or did argue this for a long time, um, that this is a key, the key aspect. The second thing is, if you recall the way I tried to say there's evidence for the skill-biased skill or task-biased technical change arguments, that was premised in part on the idea that the places or the industries or firms or workplaces where skill demand shifts have gone up faster are the more technologically advanced industries. Okay? So you could do a mirror image type argument here and say, well, are they the ones where the trade flows, where the imports came in more? It turns out they're not. It turns out it's different industries where the uh, bigger Im import flows came in from. So again, that's kind of hard to think about, about what's going on. Third and fourth points I think are really critical. The third one I've already referred to the idea that skill upgrading, skill demand shifts are going on in the developing world as well as the developed world, and they're going on in the same industries in the developing world as well as, as well as in the developed world. The fourth argument is that skill upgrading is going on in non-traded sectors. If, if the argument was to be that um, trade was the key driver, then presumably you would see the shifts occurring in the traded sectors, but you wouldn't see anything going on in the non-traded sectors. So non-traded sectors like wholesale trade and hotels, you see big shifts in skill demand in favouring more educated workers. So it's kind of hard to reconcile the trade story, at least um, until the relatively recent past. Okay. Um, let me talk about the other main explanation. How long have I got, John? <coughs> Not 10 minutes. Okay, that's perfect. Okay, the other main explanation to receive some attention, albeit much less than the technology and trade arguments, is the idea that labour market institutions, um, particularly the decline of labour market institutions, has been important for, 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 for the observed changes in wage inequality. Now, this argument does rest a little bit on the idea that the UK and the US are the places where the big rises in wage inequality have been. So the idea is that institutions, particularly like trade unions, who have historically propped up the wages of workers at the bottom end of the distribution. As they become less important in the labour market, um, then their ability to prop up the wage distribution at the bottom end has not been very successful. So if you look at what's happened to unionisation in America or in Britain, it's kind of gone trending down at the same time as inequality has gone trending up. So some people would argue that, you know, maybe this has been an important factor in terms of underpinning uh, wage inequality. So, you know, if you look at union density, the proportion of a workforce for the union members in Britain, it, in 1979 it was about 55, but depending on which source you look at, it was about 55%. It's now 27%, so it's half what it was um, back then. Um, so, if you want to appraise this kind of idea, well, it does seem to be of some relevance, possibly for the bottom part of a distribution, but it seems hard to tell a story about why unions should, um, should be influencing the top half of the distribution and why union decline would have an impact on that. And remember we've seen this 1950 um, index trending up all the way. Uh, so it's kind of a little bit hard to think about the unionization um, story as being able to explain the whole evolution in terms of what's been going on. And the, other, the other idea about labour market institutions, which is specific to the UK, is that uh, we got a minimum wage in uh, April of 1999. Uh, when, you know, it's kind of surprising in some ways that the UK was a real outlier um, prior to April 1999 in that we didn't have a minimum wage uh, floor um, in, in the labour market. Practically all countries in the world have some form of minimum wage legislation. Certainly in the advanced world have some form. It may operate through the collective bargaining pr process, as in the Scandinavian countries, but most countries have some form of minimum wage legislation. Uh, we didn't have any national minimum wage 
prior to April 1999, and even the old industry-based system but used to operate in a small number of industries, about 10% of, covering about 10% of workers, the wages councils, was, were abolished in 1993. Um, so we actually didn't have any minimum wage. It's quite interesting to think about the, the idea about what minimum wage might have done here. Because remember when I showed you those charts before, in fact, it's, uh, oh, it's not there again. Um, those charts before, I said that the 50-10 wage differential, particularly for women, really plateaued out in the 2000s. So one obvious candidate explanation as to why that might have happened could be an institution. It could be the introduction of the minimum wage in April 1999. This seems even more persuasive if you look at this chart taken from the Low Pay Commission. So the minimum wage came in in uh, April 1999 at £3.60 an hour. So that kind of step change thing you see is the minimum wage going up, the dark blue line. Um, so the minimum wage goes up a lot um, up to uh, 2010. In fact, it goes up by 65% um, from the initial level of £3.60 up to whatever it is, £5.93 um, in, uh, in October 2010. Um, this is faster than average earnings growth was. It's fa much faster than um, price inflation was. So if you see the minimum wage going up by more than the average in the distribution, and this is obviously a significant candidate explanation for why you've seen the uh, no rise in lower tail wage inequality in the, in the 2000s. Okay? So particularly, given if you think that most, most of the beneficiaries of a minimum wage are women, uh, if you look at the far, about 80% are, about, and many of whom work part-time, um, you can see the far chart over is very consistent with the idea of a minimum wage. Um, may well have uh, slowed down or caused a stagnation in lower tail inequality that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Um, here's some trends in UK earnings inequality indices getting a little bit further down to the bottom. And actually, if you look at the far right bottom element, the minus 0.2, that's actually the 25-10 ratio for women. And actually, that's falling through the 2000. It falls by 0.2% percentage point per year. Okay. So it does seem to be some evidence that the minimum wage is probably um, tempered uh, rising lower tail inequality um, through, through the 2000s. Okay, so I just want to summarize. Um, it seems to me that you can get some way with a version of a skill-biased or task-biased technological change hypothesis, possibly coupled with the idea about institutional changes to observe, to give you a reasonable explanation of why wage inequality has risen by so much. It's kind of more, the skill-biased technological change version has been nuanced in some way by this more modern, um, more, more kind of realistic, actually, argument but that um, task-biased technical change and labor market polarization may have been a key factor underpinning um, labor market polarization, uh, rising inequality. Let me just conclude with a warning sign from the country that's got much higher inequality and looking at the patterns of change that have been going on in the U.S. labor market in the recent time. There's two key things that you can see in the US, US um, inequality literature uh, uh, that, that are very important, I think, for perhaps what might be going on to a certain extent in this country as well. So I'm going to give some warning signs here. Uh, what's happened in terms of education is there's been a slowdown in the, uh, in the increase in education. So the, the percent of graduates in the US was much higher uh, back in the 1980s, and it's, it remains higher than, higher currently than, 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 than in the U.S. So when I showed you that chart before, saying about 6% of graduates in 6% 6, 6 in employment uh, were graduates in 1980, the equivalent number in the U.S. was something like 24. 
Okay, so there's been a slowdown from about 24 since, uh, which has led, because of the slowdown in supply, to a very, very rapid rise in educational wage differentials, which have caused significantly rising inequality. Uh, the other feature of the US is there's been no growth in real wages at medium for the last 30 years or so. It's also true there's been no growth in, in the median in the last five or six years um, in this country as well. Um, so this is a kind of warning sign, but I think people might want to have a little look at so these are some numbers from Golden and Katz's great book on, um, on, on the U.S. labor market. So this is years of education, years of schooling um, in the U.S. going back a long way. And you see this trending up for a long, long time. And then there's quite a big slowdown in, in years of schooling in the U.S. What did that do? Well, it did this. It caused this um, big increase. So that's a big slowdown in the supply. If the supply slows down, and presumably we're going to think that the wage differentials are going to go up. So this is the college degree versus high school diploma weekly wage ratio running right up to 2008. So the period where you saw this education slowdown is a period where you saw this big increase in, in, in inequality going on. Okay. Um, the other feature, which is quite interesting, I think, is that there's been no or barely any real wage growth at the median of the uh, of the US um, wage distribution. So this red line here is male median real wages in the US. So it's indexed at 100 in 1973. It managed to crawl up to 105 um, by 2007. Uh, this is at the same time as productivity, business productivity, um, went up from, uh, also indexed at 100, went up to something like 183 um, by 2007. So you see, five percent. This is the person at the middle of the distribution. This isn't low-wage people. This is the person at the middle of the distribution, but the male at the middle of the male distribution. So it's about five percent growth in real wages, yet productivity went up by eighty-three percent. So the person at the median is not really getting any share of that increased productivity that's going on, uh, which is clearly going to people in the top half of the distribution. Okay. So just to finish. Um, my view of this is that, if, from a policy perspective, the work in this area really emphasises the need to get skills and education policy right. And the more I think about this, the more I think this is really important. And keeping up the supply of highly educated workers uh, is really necessary, as long as workers are getting internationally comparable skills, to make sure that the wage differentials are not going to rise any further. We don't want to slow down in supply like the slowdown in supply we've seen in the US. Uh, otherwise, the trend shifts in demand are going to outstrip it, and we're going to see rising wage, wage inequality by even more. Um, it seems to me also that coupled with a sensible approach on the role of labour market institutions like minimum wages, like unions who are trying to set, wage, you know, set reasonable collective bargaining contracts, um, there is no real reason why we have to have continually rising wage inequality. Other countries have managed not to do that. Uh, by operating their education systems and by operating their role that the labour market institutions play with not having continued trends up in, up in wage inequality. Okay. Thank you very much, Steve. So thanks to Steve for uh, a really excellent talk and uh, we now have some time for some questions. There's a roaming mic, I think, going around. I can see one question already at the end. So... Uh, could you, um, and as you ask the questions, announce who you are, just so uh, we know who's speaking. Hi there, I'm Karsten Jung. I study economic sociology at the LSE. Um, I have one confusion and one question. Um, maybe you can answer to the confusion as well. Um, because we, in, in the beginning we were looking at the developments of inequality 
1910 ratios. Um, but you were also mentioning that the share of, um, of employment of different industries shifted. So it's kind of difficult, uh, I'm confused in terms of think, uh, thinking about um, or that there's different people we are talking about at the 10 percent uh, percentile because their share, the share of, um, of people in different industries changed as well. I don't know if, if I made that clear, but we have both two things shifting here and that's kind of difficult to think about, I think. And this is also leads me to my question concerning the uh, polarization um, you were talking about, that different industries or different skill levels became, uh, uh, got a different importance. Um, so the question is, aren't the, the differences in demand you were talking about, that you have some proxies uh, about apparently, aren't they only the proximate causes and shouldn't we actually look at the changes in the sectoral composition of the economy, like for example the rise of the service economy and wh where those changes actually come from? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean there's some interesting observations there. But I mean, I mean, there is an answer from the literature. But if you look at what's going on between industries, which is your story about compositional change and compositional shifts between industries, and if you look about what's going on within industries, all of the action in rising inequality is within industries rather than between industries. So the idea about the shift from manufacturing to services, uh, or indeed, even if you go into much more disaggregated industries than that, it, it doesn't have much empirical power at all. All the action is within industries rather than between industries. The same is true if you take, a, take, take occupations. The bulk of a rise in wage inequality is within occupations rather than, rather than between occupations. The big between group shift is the education, the skills shift. That's, that, that's actually occurring. And of course, those education shifts are going on within industries over time as well. See, we had this, I, mean, it's, I mean, it's also true of the trends you're talking about have been going on a lot longer, but deindustrialization and the move to the services sector has been going on a lot longer than the rise in wage inequality. So it's kind of hard to think of those compositional changes as being, as being a key factor. I mean, some of, your, some of the work also estimates these education-based wage differentials holding composition constant, and you still see a big increase in the in the educational wage differential. So I'm afraid it's a bit of a kind of um, myth that the industry composition stuff matters in this, in this context. And that's true both for the overall measures of inequality and also for these between, well, well sorry, the this between skill stroke education groups measure of inequality. There was a question here. Down there, please. Jonathan. Hi, Jonathan Portis from the National Institute. Um, I thought that was a magisterial survey of, of where the literature is on the sort of the bulk of the distribution, as it were. You didn't say very much about what's happened at the very top, uh, not just the 90, but the 95th, 99th, and 99.9th percentile. We all know that something quite extraordinary has been going on there. Um, there have been occasional attempts to uh, explain it through the sort of superstar literature, but thank you. Um, but uh, not in some ways. I don't find them very convincing, and I, I you know, I wondered what your thoughts were on that. Um, and another point. I mean, you said at the end, well, the basic conclusion of all of this is sort of fact being it's all about skills and human capital. Um, does that apply if you? buy the outdoor 
sort of Manning stuff about hollowing out? Is it still all about skills or is it much more specifically about task-oriented education designed for produce for people with particular task orientations or something? It, it does it get a bit more complicated? Yeah, those both are really good questions. Uh, the, the key trend at the top. Okay, so I should say my main interest in this talk was to explain what's going on in the overall labour market. Okay, that said, a key factor is what's been going on at the top, particularly in the 2000s. Uh, it, it, it's true that I showed you that the 1950 was, has been trending up all the time, but if you pick the 99-90, that's trending up as well. So this, this shows you the share in the 2000s. Um, of, of, of wages going to the top, and you can see you get a really big increase um, at the top percentile here. Um, I, can, I can give you two answers to this, one of, one of which is that both the authors of this, uh, from this table, Bell and Van Rien, are in the audience. One, <laughs> one, is, one is sitting next to you, and one is here. Um, and so they're obviously working on extreme wage, extreme wage inequality, which is an extremely important area, I think. I share your view, it's rather hard. I actually think we should probably have a globalisation rather than international trade stuff may well be important. Not necessarily in the superstars kind of way, perhaps more in, in terms of tournament theory. There may be global tournaments going on in some of these things. You know, you can pick on certain sectors where you can see that is going on in football being um, a prime one, where football has become much more globalised and there's very high salaries going to some people um, in that kind of sector. Um, it's important um, and it's increasingly important to try and understand um, what's going on with that as well. The second question is a good question as well, although I do think it's about education and skills, but that's, that's the sense in which I think the idea about having internationally com com competitive education and skills to go along with the tasks required in the jobs um, that are being highly complementary to these new technologies is, is, is extremely important. I really think that's very, very important. And it's not just about graduates, of course, it's about technical education and vocational education, delivering that properly as well. And we've got a shortfall of intermediate skills properly applicable to the labour market in this country. And I think that's also a key, key factor about making sure that people aren't displaced by the new technologies um, in, the, in, in the future as well. So I think the education and skills thing is inherently related to a polarisation and we're tasked by technical change as well. There's a question over there. Thank you very much. I'd like to, my name is Paul Hudson. Um, as crime reporter, say, no longer a fixed academic abode. I'd like to thank um, Professor Machin for a most interesting and well-presented talk. Um, my first question goes back, I think, to his first diagram. Notwithstanding the effects of the uh, minimum wage being most beneficial to women, especially as women, I think, have tended to not be unionised as much as men, um, I was a bit um, surprised to see that the ratio, the 90-10 ratio for women, was not much higher than it was. In fact, not even higher than for men, given the fact that uh, over the last 50 years, the uh, proportion of university students who are female, when I was an undergraduate, that's about 100 years ago. I think it was about 20% um, women. But now it's something of the order of 60%. So I'm a little bit surprised that this uh, ratio in the 90-10 is lower for women than it is for men. Yeah. And um, another, sorry. And another thing that um, struck me was that the 90-10 uh, ratio was so high in Germany, given that Siegi Price at Cambridge did... Uh, 
a study many, many years ago of um, the skills of employees in manufacturing industry in Germany, Britain, and one or two other countries. And the Germans who worked on the assembly lines were far more technically qualified than the British. So one would have thought, in fact, the uh, inequality of wages between the top and the bottom might have actually been uh, a bit more compressed than it is. The only thing I can think of, and this is just a guess, is that the Germans, particularly companies like Siemens, have been outsourcing an awful lot of their work, in spite of actually having a highly skilled workforce in Germany itself. Yeah, I mean, I mean both of those are relevant questions as well. Um, this, chart, this chart is for full-timers only. So if you put the part-time women in, you get a much bigger 90-10. Um, in there as well. So that, that would explain part of that. Um, Part-time women have not done especially well, although they've benefited from a minimum wage period in the, in the 2000s. Uh, but they fell very... Part-time women fell behind full-time women in the period prior to two, 2000 as well. So you would see a bigger 90-10 if you put the part-timers in. Um, the second... The, oh, the other, the other point is, yes, you're right on the, um, on the education um, shares of, of men and women. Uh, if you think about this, I mean, I don't want to think about um, separate labour markets for men and women, and so I don't want to look at the returns to education and the supply of education differing from men and women. If you did want to do that, you would see that actually the wage differentials for women have come down, for female graduates have come down a bit relative to the uh, wages of non-graduates, um, which is in line with the supply increase being faster for women than for men as well. So I think both those things are fine. I think, I think the charts are fine with that. Um, the Germany uh, question is also a good one. Um, it's a little bit lower in those in international numbers. Um, there's, another, there's a paper that looks in real detail at what's happened in Germany um, by Christian Dussmann at UCL and various colleagues. And it, 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 it's true that, um, that there is some degree of greater compression of the wage distribution. But Germany's been characterised by pretty fast rising wage inequality since somewhere around the mid-90s, probably after the unification, um, but somewhere around, around the mid-90s. Um, and so Germany's been rising very fast, and it, and it seems to be the same kind of mechanisms, um, technical changes, and decline of unions in Germany as well, which have contributed to um, rising wage inequality there. Please. Hello, my name is uh, Gerard. I'm a student here at the LSE. Um, I have a question because I, I don't know if you just mentioned it really quick, but about the school attainment in the United States going like flattening out. Uh, did you mention that there was any connection with, for example, the, the fees that are, that are being charged there and the way also higher education policy kicks in? Because I think that's interesting as well to discuss in these times as well here in the UK. But I think throughout Europe, uh, where higher education used to be, well, free, maybe not totally free, but at least affordable, uh, and it's moving towards this American system. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's the slowdown. Um, there's the slowdown chart. This is years of schooling. So it's just average years of schooling. But it is partly because of um, reduced um, or slowdown in graduation rates. The reason I think it might not be what you're talking about is this, this, this slowdown is almost all in, uh, entirely due to men. 
Um, it's the same point as I just raised a moment ago to a certain extent that women have been increasing their education supply a lot. A lot of this is due to men um, not, going on, not, not going on to college, uh, which is a pattern of change that we've started to see in this country um, uh, as well. And I think most people would want to trace that back to the schooling system, the actual compulsory schooling system. Uh, it's difficult to be very concrete on explaining exactly what's going on there, though, having said that. Nick. <coughs> Thank you. Uh, Nick Alton, uh, also a colleague. Um, just looking forward, um, will these trends continue? Um, skilled bias technical change, if that's really what's going on, um, well, it's been going on for a long time. We, we can't, can't uh, predict the future of technical progress, but I suppose one might say it's quite likely to continue for a good many years, even though, as you pointed out, it hasn't always been going in that direction at all historical epochs. Um, but what about the rise in educational attainments? Um, uh, we obviously can't expect more than 100% of the population to get uh, a college degree, but will it uh, flatten out uh, in Britain as in other countries? I, mean, I think we must be now for the latest cohort at a similar proportion. And in Britain, it's a fairly simple criteria for getting into a university. Can you get one A-level? Um, if you can, you can get into some university to do a degree. Not the LSE, but some university. Um, and there really is a question, isn't there, about the proportion of the population who are motivated or able to reach that standard? especially given the sort of backing and, back and family backup that uh, they can be uh, expected to have. Absolutely. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd in part answer that question the way I answered the question a moment ago about the US, um, which is that, you know, there were, you would want to track some of that back to the schooling system and the schooling system not delivering enough, uh, the compulsory schooling system, uh, for some people to get on to get uh, to get to university as well. Um, the, the other point that's of interest, though, at the moment is that if you look at those wage differentials between graduates and non-graduates, or graduates and people with no educational qualifications, and you just focus on the younger cohort, who've got many more, many more of whom have got degrees than the older cohorts, they're not falling like you should see them fall. If you thought that there's too many people there, um, they're just not falling yet. And so, you know, it, it seems to me that. It would take some, you know, it, it, there's still maybe more scope for for for, for, the, for the differentials to carry on to carry on rising. If the differentials were plummeting down, and I would agree that maybe we'd reach the peak, but they're not plummeting down. They're still pretty flat, even for the younger cohort of people. Um, they're falling for women where the supply increase has been bigger, which does show that that will happen at some point. But they're not falling for men. So it's kind of interesting. Okay. Thank you. Um, just one more rather technical question concerning the canonical model. Um, you were mentioning that there is indices used for supply and demand. Um, I'd be interested in how do you actually measure uh, demand for a certain kind of job? The demand is, I mean, in, in the canonical model, they do something very simple, and they talk about the trend demand shifts. 
The, measure, the measuring of supply is really quite um, complicated. So there's a lot of stuff about trying to measure its supply by efficiency units. So trying to get hours which are composition adjusted in the same way you were talk, talking about before. But in some ways, the demand. So you've got you've got the, the quite complicated measure of supply. Um, this composition adjusted effective labor supply based on hours differences between graduates and non-graduates, but trying to hold their characteristics constant. Then you've got the relative wages, and so the third bit is effectively what's left over, which is the demand. So in some ways the demand is being inferred as the trend that's left over once you take into account the relationship between wages and supply. So the measurement of demand is extremely naive in this, in this kind, kind of approach, but, but the measurement of supply is quite complicated, and you've got the wages which are giving the action if you think about that kind of race between demand and, and supply. I mean, there is another literature out there which does com compute some of these kind of shift share measures of employment changes across industries to proxy demand as well. Um, I can talk to you about that afterwards if you wanted to. Um, I'm going to abuse my chairperson's prerogative. Um, I'm going to ask Steve, I think, what is the most, one of the most profound and difficult questions in uh, social science? How do we explain the French? So if I look at uh, your international comparisons table, then, you know, as you said, in most countries, inequality is starting to rise, apart from France, to where it's actually shrunk. And interestingly enough, I mean, if, if you look back in 1970, France was actually one of the most unequal countries of all of the sample that you have. It was actually has a level of the 1910 greater than, the, than there was in the United States. And then, obviously, things reversed over the next um, 40 years. So uh, I don't know whether you or anybody else you know, may have... Uh, what, what's happening in France, which is so different than, than uh, other, other countries? Yeah, I don't know the answer to There is some work that, then going back to the issue about... The, oh, it's gone. Going to the issue about the top, that some of those patterns have been happening in France at the top as well. Um, and so that, 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 those numbers you're referring to are 90 and so higher than the 90th percentile, I think there may be some increases in inequality going on. But the 9010 seems to be, you know, maybe it's size of the public sector and things like that, but the 9010 seems to be um, falling, if anything, if you believe those numbers I mean, from the OECD. Has, has anybody tried to use the minimum wage? I mean, that's, that's pretty tough in France. Would that, would that explain a good fraction of, of what's happened over time in France, do you think? I know that's much no, tougher it, than No, because it will only do stuff at the bottom end. And it would be nice to look at the upper tail and the lower tail to see what to see what's going on there. But I mean, I must confess a bit of ignorance about that. I can't really talk too much about what's been going on in France. Any other any other questions? If not, then I'd just like to thank Steve for a really stimulating uh, lecture, and uh, thanks very much to all of you for attending. So.